Hello, Sam Fisher. Hi. Tanner and Teague, extraordinaire, incredible fashion designer. I, I, I saw your stuff on Brunswick Street when you had a store and loved the style. It just felt so original and fun and f- kind of, and I don't want to excuse my ignorance in, the, in my knowledge of fashion and stuff, but it, it just, it was suave as fuck. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah. I- well, what, do you, what is your most common feedback on from punters? I mean, I think everyone has their own, <clears throat> like, and trying to categorize something. I've, like, I, I see what I see in it and I build it for whatever reason, but I'm always interested to know what other people think of it and, and how they would classify it because mm. that, that's such a, fashion's such a personal thing. Mm. Well, I think our strongest feedback, though, is what really drives me and my history in terms of design is the way the garments are cut and I think that yeah the most common feedback is that the way it's cut and the way it feels on the body is really unique Mm. and I think for women in particular you know body shapes are so diverse and it's ready to wear as a thing like as a nurse it has to like you have to build garments for a particular size and grade it up and down like that's just how every every fashion house works but trying to find ways that that can be a bit more accommodating to people Mm. and that's the feedback we we get like you know not to be kind of over the top about it but we have many loyal customers who are like you know i wish you were around 20 years ago when i was in my you know early 20s or something because it would have changed my life like it would have made me feel different about who i am Mm. and how i exist just because of the the cut is you know what i mean Mm -hmm. yeah you feel great in it like i've got a few pieces over the years and you just you feel you feel it's kind of you feel really comfortable and just the, the way everything hangs off you and feel fits on you feels just so unconventional yet so tailored. That's, mm. that's, that's, what, that's what I enjoy about it. And I don't know if that's the long T-shirts or the way it wraps around your waist or the, the drop crotch pants or mm. whatever, whatever it is. What, what's your trajectory with like your vision and why you cut the way you do? I guess it comes from a couple of different places. Like basically what's important to me is getting the fabric moving on the body i think as soon as you break the line of the cloth as it hangs on the body then it it introduces a whole nother dimension you know like um especially now the current trend this whole sort of norm core post scandy sort of thing everything's really flat and really blunt and this is great it's cool it's whatever but it makes it very difficult you can't hide in that in that sort of space that with those sort of garments and so for me and especially this comes from my time at Westwood learning to cut and learning to uh, consider garments in a totally different way breaking the line of the fabric makes it much more uh, much more flattering it you can hide bits that people want to hide because it's you know I mean there are so many tangents I can splinter off into here and I don't know how, how go crazy whatever's charming <laughs> so everyone who looks in the mirror sees something different right and and what you see in the mirror too if I was looking at the same image they're mm-hmm. totally different things and I think the hardest thing about designing clothes is a designer will have a particular vision for how an outfit or a garment should operate. But then as a customer, you are putting this on and you're bringing all of yourness, you know, what you look at, what you perceive when you look in the mirror and trying to, for me, it's like trying to design garments that have my 
sort of creative vision, but are, it's being done in a way that that has those subtle nuances that accommodate the hang-ups that everybody has. And I don't want to say that in a negative way. No. It's just fact, you know, and it's... And I think that's the hardest job with designing clothes, you know, to try and get around that and, and understand what it is to as much as you can, what it is to be a woman or what it is to be a man. And this is a huge kind of thing that you... You know what I mean? It's so, I so know what you mean. Because mm. my insecurity is like my long legs, so I always have my drop crotch or my, my pants saggy. <laughs> so yeah. that's my hang-up. Yeah. But to someone else, like... They wouldn't care. They just have like the high-waisted pants with their skinny legs and think yeah. and rock it, and it'll look good. Yeah. <laughs> and if you were to be like, okay, I'm going to design clothes that are going to accommodate your, you know, structure, for example, and then grade that down to a size. I mean, I don't know what you are in the waist, maybe thirty, thirty-two, something. 30, yeah. But then guy half your height with the same waist. You know, it's just not those those two garments. How do you make that work? You know. Yeah. Two guys with the same waist dimensions pulling it off a rack. One's six foot whatever, one's five foot whatever. It's, And so I think once you – and that's why abstract cut can be really – and when we look at the heroes in fashion like Comme de Garcon, Ray Kawakubo for Comme de Garcon, Yoji Yamamoto, Izimiyaki, it's really about perceiving a new way or, or an alternate way to wear clothes that then brings in a whole nother dimension and then it starts to break down those those hang-ups and right. potentially, you know. Right, right. Yeah. So interesting. So that's, is that one of the motivations for why you cut the way you do then? 100%. Yeah. yeah. And what I really noticed, I mean, I came, I studied at RMIT a thousand years ago <laughs> and the way that we are trained to understand or were trained to understand how to make clothes is you take a template called a block and you trace that off and you do a bunch of lines that are about you know design interventions and then you make a garment and that's that it's very much almost like working from CAD you know it's all very flat but then if you go to Europe like the tradition like the historical tradition of avant-garde sort of goes back to this woman Madeleine Viennet and she was the first person to cut on the bias and she was one of the first people what's what's cutting on the bias so fabric all fabric well outside of knits but all woven fabrics is like a you've got yarns running in this direction and in that direction so it's like a like a you know like a lattice in a way and so the dimensional stability is obviously in that direction and in that direction, like horizontal mm. and vertical like that. So if you, if you want maximum strength out of a garment, you'll want to cut with the grain running where the, the, t- the maximum tension is going gotcha. to be. But as soon as you flip it on the bias, which is a 45 degrees, you get this uh, gorgeous kind of shearing quality because you're, you're undermining that rigidity and that dimensional stability and the the fabric it falls and it it drapes in a totally different way oh. so she was the first person to do that and the way she came to doing that is she was working on a small mannequin and she developed or as far as i'm aware she developed this way of draping so there's a whole bunch of rules around draping um but it's basically working with the cloth on the stand and and we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but it becomes this conversation between the mannequin as a, a volume and the fabrication, so the cloth itself, and then you as the designer with your creative intention. And the fabric will show you how it wants to move 
the body is this static thing, which is obviously in reality not static, but mm. it, it's this uh, void, mm. like like the envelope of a house. You have to accommodate certain things, but but that conversation, that constant interplay means that you are moving around in a three-dimensional space in real time and that the fabric will show you things that you couldn't imagine. Mm. When I learnt to cut patterns and to design clothes, you would take a concept, like some theoretical whatever it happens to be, try and blend that into a way of conceiving garments on the body and then take it to this flat template and try and extrapolate whatever design ideas and right. you know from sketching to to drafting like that so this is like live action totally cutting. totally yeah 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 totally and when i went to westwood when i had my first interview with andreas vivian's husband i was showing him you know my folio and that back then i was so this is you know mid or late 2000s i was really into the belgian deconstructed stuff um, quite aggressive in its aesthetic although it comes from tailoring it's got a darkness and a rawness to it and it's highly theoretical it's like the designers designers and Andreas was like what is this like it's all about the garments where's the person inside it and that just totally blew my mind because I, I had always been incentivized potentially to think that the garment should be more more than just the person who's wearing it it should be some ex- expression of some theory or trying to change the way we view something like mm-hmm. even more of an and i went through rmit fashion with much more of an art bent to it and i was living with artists and da, 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 so it was all of that but then learning draping as a way of fundamentally accommodating the human form first then applying some quite firm rules around how you engage in the technique but then allowing that conversation to sort of happen with the fabrication itself it was just like a and that has informed my practice and will continue to do so yeah moving forward and so how that must have been such an exciting journey for you when you got in at vivian's and then started um actually learning the thing that he suggested yeah, I mean, it's it was very much more... That was... So Vivian met Andreas when she was lecturing in Vienna. So she was kind of like, she's the guru and he was a student and then their relationship turned into whatever. Um, what he said to me was really mind-bending because it was just a totally alternate perspective to what it means to wear clothes and why they should exist. But then going into the studio, and at that time... Um, I was employed as a pattern maker and they had no assistant designers so the head pattern maker would act as an assistant designer and Vivian and the head pattern maker would work sort of one-on-one like that Um, and so there was this six-month super steep learning curve for me like trying to get my head around what this technique is and, and why it's important and then as often happens in a company there's one person will leave and it sort of precipitates a chain of whole like a you know shifting of the guard and so yeah the two senior pattern makers left and it there was a situation where I stepped into that role so after six months of like trying to get as much information out of these pattern making gurus then they left and I was just like all right and it's it's one of those times I think in everyone has it in their career where they kind of recognize the importance of this and if you step up and make that work that's going to change everything or it's too much and you walk away and 
you know, obviously I stuck it out and, and hmm. it was an extremely formative time. Yeah. How many years were you doing that? Then? <laughs> I think I was there for about five years. Wow. Um, and what, uh, towards the end, like the company was in an ex- quite a big expansion sort of phase and so they were then bringing on a lot of other team members and they brought assistant designers on um, and I kind of started to see people who had been in the company it, it seems to be with a with a company with such a strong handwriting like Vivian Westwood or you know Galliano or whatever you would be there from sort of five to seven years or you'd be there for 25 years if you're in between and I saw it happen they would exit the company after say 10 years and then move into another company and sort of be expected to either replicate that handwriting which I saw like you know ex-designers going to another company and then producing more or less Westwood styles for that company or they fail to be able to to change that that handwriting is so embedded in your design practice that you're no longer able to step outside of that Mm. and so that was something I was quite quite cautious of so Mm. five years it may not seem like a very long time but for me it was for sure like Mm. there either needs to be room for me to grow in this company which there wasn't because it was Vivian was right there and that's the ceiling or it's like okay what what else Mm. what's next yeah and so you took that would have been a big tell me about that specific pivotal moment where you transitioned to create Tan and Teague yeah so you really so when I went to London um it, it sort of happened, you know, there was a competition that I was involved with and went to Italy and then decided to do that, whatever. Um, but I was travelling with my now wife at that time and so she was there throughout that whole Westwood phase. And with companies like Westwood as well, we all, we all have this idea of the, the big fashion houses being super glamour and it's this, you know, super luxe facade and whatever. But ultimately everyone's working so hard to make it work mm. that it becomes like a family, you know, like you're spending, especially in that show time, that two months before presenting in Paris, you're spending, you know, every day there, you're working until super late at night, you're all eating together and, mm. and really they become your family. And, uh, and, and Kylie was, was inside that with me there. Um, when my wife got pregnant, that was really a moment where... It was kind of like, if we want to stay in London, we need to be in a situation where we can make that work for a family. And London, with its education system, was like, okay, we're really at a point now where we want to be choosing maybe a different way. And working as hard as I was for another company, was that something I wanted to maintain like that? Mm. So it was really a bunch of different elements. We, I did a little bit of time... At, at another company, Mark Hazer, in New York for a bit. And in the end, like, the hometown advantage, family, like, real family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we decided to move back to Melbourne, really, with the, the birth of our first child, Kitty. Yeah. So exciting. Yeah, it and, was... And then you conceived, the, the created a company as well. Then. Yeah, well, the, the idea was to come back to Melbourne and as well... So I, when I graduated at RMIT... Um, that collection was bought by a store called Eastern Market, um, which is quite a uh, sort of artisanal but quite high-end boutique, and they, they're still around anyway, and then showed another collection. And, and at that time when I got this opportunity to show a collection in Italy, it was really like... 
it was like a severing do I continue that trajectory and I think every Australian artist it's you know in whatever field or they decide am I going to keep doing this here locally or am I going to get some experience real experience Mm. in the big bad world (laughs) and that was that moment to go away but then coming back you realize and with tall poppies and with all of that stuff to come back and launch straight into to that space again wouldn't necessarily be the best idea so I spent a couple of years working for Australian houses like Scanlon and Willow in Sydney and just to re-engage in the local industry again and then after we felt that that we'd got enough contacts back and had enough experience then it was like okay let's do this all right wow how many years of that before you I think it was about two years in right. the end yeah yeah so interesting how you strategically combated tall poppy syndrome in Australia, which is like a, a real shame, <laughs> isn't it? Like compared to LA or somewhere totally. where everyone's trying to lift each other up, yeah, and connect each other, yeah. It's just, it's just, a, it's a bit of an unfortunate thing. Yeah, it's an interesting hang up. Yeah. That one. I wonder why. I wonder why. I think it's. I, I don't know where it stems from, but I wonder how much. But I mean, we've got a great country. Everything else seems to be doing all right. It's just. And maybe it is slackening off a bit. I don't know. Yeah, I think that the tyranny of distance has a huge impact here. Like, it's... You really feel it. Mm. Especially, you know, as for you too, like, you go away and when you're in the Northern Hemisphere, you are engaged. Everything's so much closer. Mm. And it's so much more connected. And things that take off blow up big like london la Mm. new york when something's awesome it's just like it's a big deal it's a big deal and people really celebrate that and i think coming all the way back to australia where it's so hard to get anything off the ground and you're so disconnected from the rest of the world like i think it just breeds it's like the small town of the world like australia is like a small town and the and the the cities of new york you know or you know america for example Mm. That's a, yeah, it's a good point. It's like it's far, far away. Um, so what, what, what actually, what is the heart of like why you got into creating in the first place? So it was art. It was for like this wanting to express yourself through the physical aesthetic. Yeah, I guess so. Um, so I studied music first, like classical music. I did a, a degree at VCA. And uh, towards... I, th- I think with music, especially in classical music, and, and maybe it's the same in any classical practice, dance or whatever, you are funneled into this really focused space mm-hmm. and that comes with it a whole history of, of ways of doing things. And towards the end of that degree, I was just like, this is for sure not what I want to be doing. And I remember, and that's super clear, I remember sitting at um, Parliament Station on my way to VCA one day and this is maybe a month out from my final recital or two months or something, and I, was, I saw this lady standing on the platform and she had a, like a deconstructed pair of shoes on and it, it just was so clear. It was like far out. Everything about what that is, like the clarity of it, the honesty of it, because I had wanted to study architecture but I was sort of shoehorned into music because it's like that's what you're good at you'll only get this one chance like you have to do it um and and as a as a live performer you're only ever as good as your last performance and nothing's permanent Mm. you know there are recordings but still that's who you were it's not who you are whereas the idea of producing something that exists 
and producing something in isolation and being able to then present it without the performative element like there was something really beautiful about that or the the, the performative element can be orchestrated without you having to because I had uh, I had had quite some really shitty experiences in that final year at VCA like uh, if your confidence is undermined in the performance space it can be really debilitating and 100% and that that was where that's totally where I was feeling myself and and so the idea of being able to produce something with with honesty and integrity but with all of this kind of latent kind of awesomeness and yeah you know like yeah so so, so it says the honesty or the could you double down on that for a moment so when you when you mean honesty in a way the shoe is designed what does that mean I think and now this is me talking about I suppose many many years on but you know and then this is another sort of a soapbox thing for me like you know when we think about the arts and science like on on one side you have science which is fundamentally like a, a problem solving mechanism it's it's a structure that's designed to be able to give us a yes or no result on something we have a question we feed it into a, a system and that system is designed to be able to break it down into so many tiny components that we can have a black and whiteness to it whereas art like real art its sole purpose is for the viewer to question our existence you know and if mm. if, if a piece of art is not doing that is it art maybe it's mm. not art mm, maybe it's mm. furniture or because anything profound has that effect on us we walk away really questioning something and what's beautiful about design is that it sits in the middle. Yes, it's a problem-solving mechanism, but it can leverage... It leverages both sides. So you can take super left-field stimulus and funnel that into this this problem-solving mechanism that the net result is, like, let's say, a Ferrari or, you know, mm. Frank Gehry architecture. Like, it gives us and it enriches without necessarily having to do anything more than solve a problem like it's a house or it's mm. and so authenticity in design is where you can't you don't see anymore why there's just a an innate sense of a yes it functions it works but that form over function it disappears and it just i think this is what like good design is what is good design it's just something where you know it's right. Maybe you can't even put words to it. And if you're, uh, if you're really educated in that space, maybe you could understand why it's good. But there is an authenticity to it. There's a, you know, like Chanel says, always take a piece of, ju- take something away. Like there's a paired, it's paired back to its most honest state. Uh, yeah. And in that space, you get this purity and, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. I love that. It's, it's, it, I can see a parallel in Rick Rubin's production. Like he's a, one of the best producers in the world. Like everyone from like Metallica to Ed Sheeran, and he's he's he regards himself as a reducer more than a producer. Mm-hmm. Like he just strips things out to the and it's kind of, and it's such a and he also is a, is one to say show me don't tell me like mm-hmm. we're like you know you can tell me but. I need to hear it, you know. Totally. And, and I think it's they're two great lessons in creative process that I found really helpful as well. Like with cutting video, which is kind of my craft, it's it's such an, it's such a feeling it out thing and, and pulling out mm. parts that 
the prolong the narrative that needs to be told and then also to getting in touch with what narrative wants to be told mm. and I'm more the facilitator of that um, you know or like the chaperone or the the, the, tr- the cutter so it's funny we both cut but <laughs> I cut film or video and you mm. cut cloth but it, it's, it's a similar it feels like I'd love to know some more of your like hard line creative um, like what good design is things like that because I find that fascinating yeah I mean I so I've lectured on and off at RMIT for many years so I have put a bit of thought into this stuff and I think it boils down to obviously there's something that needs to be done whether it's putting together a clips of of footage with audio or it's building a garment or a chair or whatever so there's a reason for something to exist but then there has to be this hierarchy of needs within the existence and and the birthing process of anything and that hierarchy is super important and with garments I talk about it in terms of what's the gesture of the garment like okay it's a tailored jacket or it's a a pair of trousers but what's the ness of it like what's the the fundamental important component of it and and with a garment it might be a twist that runs through like what's the gesture and then how do we strip away everything else to increase the importance of that gesture you know building building that hierarchy does that seem need to be there maybe it shouldn't be because it detracts from from what's beautiful about it and in that this the then this is something else that i learned a lot at westwood that that gesture doesn't then it doesn't need to be relevant at the start what the gesture is what's important is that at the end we know what it is and that everything that comes into making that beautiful is around promoting the, the, that primary gesture or whatever. So the ge- what, what you might bring to the stand or what might be the stimulus to make a garment might be, and for me I love doing this, like the intersection of two pieces of fabric, like a, a mm. seaming technique or like for these trousers, the whole idea around this tech collection was not having any top stitch. So there are all these panels, there's all this technical stuff, but how do we strip it away so it's... It, it seems to everything seems to just be floating you know mm, mm. and so in order to make this important what do i need to do to to take everything away to give that it's you know what i mean right yeah and yeah. That, and that, that that in itself like that uh constant hierarchy within the, the creation and perfection of something perfection's a shit word but it's like refining it though isn't it yeah yeah when you're pulling away the crap or the the things that limit the gesture from being exclaimed that's the refining kind of process the refining and in that refining process you might discover something where your trajectory shifts completely like you thought it was about this but in the process of trying to refine and refine you come to some sort of resolution where it's like wow that is magical this is now the important thing. Right. And what I found with draping, because you're, you're following the fabric and it's talking to you, and you're, once you get good at it, you, you can really feel and, and talk with the fabric, that it might show you the way two things, like a piece of fabric wraps around and reconnects. And this connection here, this intersection, is so beautiful in itself that you might build a whole family of garments just around that connection. Wow. And you stumbled upon that. And that's a constantly a stumbling process. Yeah. You know? And that's what draping represents, that sketching, you're limited to what you can think. 
you know, I mean, okay, there's a, an element of serendipity with the line on the paper, but fundamentally you have to imagine something to be able to draw it, in my humble opinion, mm. or with my experience. Mm. Whereas with draping the fabric, it's showing you this stuff, and I think this is just such a different... It's like you're 3D painting it rather totally. than 2D painting it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's more of an experience because your whole body's... Your whole, you're, you're involved in it in a much more richer and subtle layer and it's like if we go with the painting analogy rather than having a canvas that's a square what if that canvas went mm. all the way around so this line it has to come back to mm. somewhere on mm. the as you move around in 360 and when you once you come back to there it's it was here and now it's here and how do we reconnect that and so the whole thing well it makes total sense as the smartest way to design clothes because because you're 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 around a human being rather than just it, feel, it feels very scientific and logical now. It is, even as creative as one might get on a sketch pad, it seems very, um, like you said before, the difference between the logical mind or the scientific function of a pair of shoes and the artistry of it. Totally. And front, back, and side. Like, Gary doesn't, or his team, they don't make architecture with, you know, east elevation north elevation they're sculpting stuff in 3d and then maybe you know scanning that and putting it into cad programs like it it has to come from Mm. that space i think that yeah i think that like artists excel when they're put in a box and they have to find a way to climb out of that box right you know the more confined that space is that you are in the more you can sort of creatively explode out of it however yeah, why am I saying that? Like you need you need the, you need the canvas to paint on, or you need the function to be able to be an artist on, right? Yeah, it needs to be it needs, it needs to, to have be, a structure. But that structure then needs to be a, a, able to accommodate the real life, like all sides, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And garments aren't boxes like houses we now perceive as squares bolted on with flow and whatever and light and all of that stuff. Whereas garments are just like. Like a tailored jacket, you know, you're not playing tennis in a tailored jacket because it, it fundamentally can't do that. Mm-hmm. That's not, not what Try it's... Try me. <laughs> well, and you might split the back of it and, you know, but it's... Tennis players wear different things and mm-hmm. and there are there are limitations in that, you know. And, and then there's the exciting area of, like, if you, dan- if you create in a garment for a contemporary dancer that was doing a particular dance with fans in particular areas, like, that's a real multidimensional... Mm task right mm. to create create that have you ever had an experience where i haven't yeah but i would love to and i i love the idea of that yeah mm. yeah 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 well, i suppose even if you got your your models on the catwalk to do particular tricks that show off that but then it's just like a novelty function that <laughs> it'd be funny just to create a novelty function of a clothes like i if you're walking down the street and then you just shoulder like flip your shoulders so your right shoulder goes forward and your left shoulder goes back and it, it kind of like flows your fabric out that does this kind of snake spurs <laughs> like tricks in garments totally yeah 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 <laughs> my mate um he is this label in la called yogs and uh he he puts um iphone he's got this guy in a drop crotch yoga pants and he puts iPhone uh, cleaners or like phone cleaners, you know, that nice fabric. He stitches them into the inside of the pocket. So when you put your phone in your pocket and it cleans the screen. Yeah, nice. That's a good nice. little that's a good little function touch, I reckon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That feels kind of 
it's kind of nice on your fingers as well so it's got nice f- mm. form yeah yeah <laughs> yeah 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 and function it's yeah. super functional and i think there's heaps going on especially in china where the majority of the investment is in like technical apparel like fabrics right. and like 3d knitted leggings and stuff like there is just so much blowing up in that space like it's it's super cool so th- that's your in terms of country and location tokyo and paris what, what's the main like inspiration where your artists that you love come from where your influence comes from yeah i think y- europe obviously a lot well yeah yoji and ray Carl cooper from comedy gaston are big in terms of inspiration i think ray Carl cooper is is interesting because of her what she thinks like whatever the hell she thinks and she doesn't talk a lot about what she thinks rather than she presents it on the catwalk and mm. what the rest of the industry is doing she's doing the complete opposite not because but because you know in a way mm. and then yoji his his shapes are just totally different and yoji i know for sure he trained in paris in that way like going back to madeline vna and so i think there is this history of learning in this particular way that being said you know, the late Alexander McQueen, his stuff was totally, like, you know, mind-bending. And he trained at Savile Row, which is, like, the most sort of... When you think about Savile Row tailoring, it is such a thing. Like, it's got its own way and it's so highly, you know, technical and regimented as right. tailoring sort of should be. So he just broke, he just punk-rocked punk out of there. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and Vivian, you know, like, she didn't have a whole lot of training but was dressing the sex pistols and mclaren you know that whole thing and just like boom you know out out came this mad aesthetic punk which was so cool so cool it's so cool because clothes like just to go on the emotional deeper layer of why you like clothes it's like a good haircut it makes you feel good and when you get clothes particularly new ones or ones that you are really confident in and feel good in and that's to do with comfort as well as that looks wicked. Mm. And it, it just changes your mood. It literally changes it does, yeah. your attitude and how you bring yourself to the world. Yeah, 100%. So it's, yeah. A, it's a pretty powerful thing. Mm. And, it's, and, it's, and when you see it as an artist as you or a designer as you do, it's kind of you're giving people those, that opportunity to have those kind of experiences. Mm. So it's a very emo- it's a, like it's a... It's almost having a psychologist. <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that we don't... You know, the idea of a career retailer in this country is pretty uncommon. There aren't many people who... You know, like a career waiter, it doesn't really exist. It tends to be yeah. an in-between yeah. job. But really, like, the emotional process that you... Is it not... Get a bit closer. The emotional process that you go through trying to buy an item of clothing someone really is holding your hand you know emotionally and that sort of thing Mm. I think with as a designer like fundamentally you have to draw a line in the sand and if you look at designers with strong handwriting Rick Owens you know Yoji Vivian there is a statement about how you are going to feel in these clothes and Mm. you wouldn't walk into the store unless that's how you wanted to feel but I think fundamentally any piece of clothing when you look in the mirror and you see the version of yourself you want to be or yeah. or the be- a better version of yourself like far out i didn't know i was this guy or yeah yeah like and it makes me feel so good and yeah. this is this is important yeah, yeah it's great and and 
and there's so much variation in that as well. Like if yeah. you talk about like the the fashion industry in a lot of cases, like Topshop, the whole a new line every week, pretty much, or the yeah. new real disposable. What's your feeling or opinion about you know disposable fashion versus like quality, long lasting? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the the big thing is the environmental implication. I think waste is really not acceptable. End. Um, and so fast fashion is really just not not okay. However, you know, as I get and as I get older, you become a little bit more forgiving in life because you know potentially a little, a little bit more about the infrastructure and whatever. And you know, we can't all be dressed head to toe in Louis Vuitton or Balenciaga. Like there, there isn't the funding for everybody to be able to do that. And to an extent these companies serve a purpose you know for someone who isn't going to pay a hundred dollars for a t-shirt who wants to buy three t-shirts for seven bucks there is opportunity for that to exist mm. however i think the, the bigger problem is our expectations of the fashion industry and that we now think that it is acceptable to be able to do that and we have as a consuming body made expectations to fashion companies that that is is how it should be mm. you know if, if it were 200 years ago where you would have maybe a suit made for you by your mum or whatever and you're going to wear that for the next 20 years you look after it differently mm. and you know something Vivian says is buy less choose well make it last and mm. I think this is important I like that and you can do that with cheaper stuff as well like you totally can like with fast yeah. fashion if yeah. you can buy those three t-shirts for seven bucks because that's your budget well they're going to last you a good four years I mean you know like if you look after them they could yeah they could yeah. they probably won't yeah. but you know what I mean but then we have this thing of like you know it's only seven bucks so it's only worth that right and this is where this is where that schism is you know mm. like if we as a consuming body decided that we were prepared to pay more for something make it last then there wouldn't need to be as much product on the market mm. and you wouldn't need to buy as often. You would spend a little bit more. Like it's, I think we all underestimate the power we have as a consuming body, but we're all, it's all so splintered and fractured in so many different, you know. Mm. So it's, yeah. Mm. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, what's, what's it currently your greatest challenge in the creative process? Do you have any that is like a hurdle that... A procrastination maybe or you know I think the hardest part is is the distance you know like working out of Australia and selling into the rest of the world this is the hardest this is the biggest hurdle for us at the moment right. for Tanner and Teague and right. it's partly it's the seasons you know like if we want to and are trying to accommodate our local customer it's at the it's you can't design two collections and you know what I mean? Like it's summer there, it's winter here. It's, and this is really, really difficult to get around. Mm. And I think that's our biggest hurdle. Right. Yeah. And, and it just being so far away, you know, like if you're not in Paris showing every season, you don't exist in that space. And also if you're not there in front of people and pushing, it's, yeah, it's that's that's the toughest part. Yeah. So does that mean just more trips overseas, or are you going to relocate? I don't think I don't think we would relocate right now. You know, kids in primary school and that sort of thing. Um, but it's really about trying to map strategically how we bring the brand and get a little bit more. You know, marketing, PR, getting the right leads, generating that sort mm. of stuff, 
um, we're really lucky with our Japanese supplier. They've got like 40 doors across Japan. Awesome. And he's a, he's a super nice dude. And uh, he, he's actually coming to... He spends like a week with me in Melbourne every couple of months because we design a collab as well as awesome. the, the main line. Um, and so nurturing those kind of relationships, but still, it's like, how do you do it in the right way, but you can't endlessly chip away? You know, mm. at some point, there's, it's got to blow up. And, mm. and we recognised that, that moving into wholesale rather than retail was, was how we wanted to steer the business. Um, and so we're, yeah, we're moving in that space. Mm-hmm. But it is a lot of effort to get to Paris with a collection, you know, both financially and also with kids and mm. the logistics and, mm-hmm. yeah. And you have? You, yeah, yeah, so we're showing in, in Paris each season. So wow. we showed three times last year, men's and women's. I was in Paris uh, in early March, just a, a month ago. Awesome. So it's, yeah, it's just maintaining that. And, and, and fashion is one of those things where especially with wholesale you know it's 10 years to be an overnight success and so you've just got to keep keep working it you know like what a hustle be in your garage mm. playing music and mm. and gigging and eventually things start to like grow and can you tell me about the your headspace mentally to be in a place where you're inspired and feel like creating and then the days when you don't feel or you've pretty consistent with that i th- i have become really structured in my working process um we have a like a business mentor and we're engaged in a fairly large entrepreneurial group and there's a lot of talk in that space around structuring your time and i Mm. made some pretty significant shifts in the last six months around developing systems for myself that enable me to not get so bent out of shape about what i was doing at a particular time like setting up default diaries in terms of what i'm doing when when i have my free time to just but i think as well with the creative process you know and in fashion it's a seasonal thing so you're building two collections a year or four or whatever it happens to be and i find that with with the designing phase it's like a bucket and information will sort of subconsciously be going in there and then it gets to a point where that bucket is full and then it just all spews out. And it's sort of like, you know, now, just done a collection, come back, trying to have a little bit of R&R as well as maintaining the sales and negotiations mm, and stuff. Balance, isn't it? It's huge. And so I'm not... If I was to design a collection tomorrow, I would have to fill that bucket up first, mm. whereas I know that... I don't have to present the next collection for five or six months and so I can allow that to organically happen great yeah it's great it's straight so important isn't it structure and deadlines and giving yourself boundaries to get things done otherwise you can just spend 10 years on one (laughs) t-shirt oh totally yeah can can I'd love to just wrap up with your philosophy or like what, what, what what would you how would you say your outlook to life is like if if how you how you personally bring yourself to life like what are the, what are your values or if it's shared moments with loved ones or um you know what what excites you about living i mean bringing something to life is to me the most beautiful thing there is so obviously children you know bringing this thing to life is I think, you know, and I heard a designer, Demir Doma, say it, but that 
creation and the birth of anything is an innately harrowing process. Like childbirth is a harrowing process, painful, it's whatever. And I think that that any creative process has that-ness to it. Like it, it has to be difficult because if it wasn't difficult, it wouldn't be as beautiful. Mm. Um, and so if I am to step outside the busyness of my life and just look at it in, in that way, I think that that creative process is is really gorgeous. You know, like watching the kids grow and sharing how they engage with the world is super beautiful. And and my wife and I, we run the business together, so we get to share the business stuff as well as kids. Um, but, yeah, being in the studio and, I mean, I, I don't... I don't like the idea of just contributing more shit to the world, for sure not. But if I wasn't, if I wasn't building beautiful things, if I wasn't bringing beautiful things to life, I would much rather maybe work in a cafe where, you know what I mean? Like I think this is that's for sure what drives me. And you know, I love I love bikes, riding push bikes, and I love all aspects of how beautiful things can be in our life you know that mm-hmm. yeah and in a, as passive a way as you know we're in the 21st century now there's a lot of other a lot of other shit going on but if we can find a way to if i can find a way to maintain that this is you're winning that's beautiful man you feel amazing when you create it don't you mm. and it, like it i'm i'm so stoked that you're like maintaining that because <laughs> because that's that's the hardest thing for any artist is to make it work and it takes a, it takes a lot of brains and balance and perspective and support and all sorts of things to align for that to happen. So congratulations. Fucking amazing. And right back at you, man. (laughs) Thanks so much, Sam.